So it's my pleasure to be here. Um, there's been about 20 people for the last two days uh, in this room with me practicing, so we we are influx challenged, <laughs> which is quite wonderful. <laughs> um, to need to have this amount of people in this room. It's a very different experience. And I'm very happy that you come and spend your Sunday morning here in the Dhamma Center. It's very inspiring to have uh, people um, interested in the Dhamma. And being interested in Dhamma means interested in knowing the heart. Knowing the heart is leads to wanting to train the heart. And training the heart is what I will talk to you about a little bit today, for the time we have. So, um, I think most of us have um, been through enough experiences, enough suffering, enough joy, enough uh, varieties of uh, experiences to um, understand that uh, unless there is a context for those experiences that are a context that those experiences just don't lead anywhere. And the context of the practice is really what is needed for understanding why we have to go through this amount of suffering, discontent, misery, um, tension, sickness, and so on. Without a context, without understanding, without right understanding, then it just seemed like life is just an endless kind of routine-like, um, or sometimes not so routine-like, um, series of um, situations unfolding one after the other, and with very little solace, very little kind of appeasement. So um, looking at the heart, at the human heart, we wonder what, what is a human heart? You know? The heart chitta in Pali means not just the, um, you know, the, the, it's not a place in particular, it's not an emotional place and it's not an intellectual place. The heart uh, in Buddhism is, uh, you could say, is the... Um, the, the, the you know, the, there is an experience of the heart when you know that the heart is liberated even for a short time and according to the teachers who have really come to the end of the path then and the Buddha himself in many ways described the heart as that which is the heart itself is luminous is bright is peaceful there's no problem there what creates our problems, or what we call our problems, is the fact that we don't know that truth. And uh, we keep identifying with that which moves through the heart, and we identify and we make them whatever it is, whatever mental state it is, whether it's a happy one or an unhappy one, a pleasant or an unpleasant one, we identify with those states of mind, and what happens is that as we identify, we cling to them, and clinging leads to suffering. That's as simple as that. So if you can't understand that much, then you have the heart of practice. You know, clinging leads to suffering. No clinging leads to no suffering. 
which means letting go leads to no suffering. Now, how many of you, how many of us are clinging right now to some, to one thing or another? It's so simple, isn't it? At some level, you know, we study the, the suttas, we study the Abhidhamma, we, we can study uh, for many, many years and still haven't got the gist of what it means to not cling, not grasp and let suffering cease. If we are, um, if we, each one of us could speak to each other in this room right now and say why we came to the Dhamma, I'm sure, I don't think without going too, being wrong, there are probably about at least 90% of us who come to the Dhamma through an experience of unsatisfactoriness. So an experience of suffering, one form or another, whether it's psychological, physical, mental, or whatever. You know. And so what is it that has brought us here is the experience of grasping, clinging, attaching to those defilements that goes through the mind and to and those defilements we attach to. You know. So um, the Buddhist teaching, the Buddhas describe in great details what is um, the mind that is not clinging and what is the mind that clings. And basically the mind that clings, it's very simple. You know, you don't need to go very far to know what it is to cling. Clinging is suffering. So deduction, no clinging, no suffering. Isn't it simple? (laughs) How many of us have complicated our mind by becoming a Buddhist? (laughs) And clinging to being a Buddhist, to being a member of a Dharma center. We still cling, don't we? (laughs) You see the conundrum where we are faced with so, um, <laughs> this is kind of humorous, isn't it? We come here to let go of suffering and we start clinging to another identity. <coughs> I'm a student of this person, of that person. I'm, I'm Buddhist. I'm a Vipassana practitioner. I'm a spirit rock a member. I go to Abhayagiri every so often. I'm an Abhayagiri um, Disciple or whatever, you know. <laughs> I'm a monastic type. I'm a lay. I don't go with those monastics, you know. They're just too strange. <laughs> they don't eat in the afternoon. I can't do that, quote unquote. So you can see how easy it is. The heart of practice is clinging, no clinging. Grasping, not grasping. Identifying, not identifying. Simple. If you just use your very clever, intelligent brain to apply that principle in your everyday life, then you'll be liberated very quickly. You'll be free much more quickly than you imagine. So now we're going to talk about the work that we need to do to actually uh, withstand the power of delusion, power of avidya. Let's 
the purification of the heart. At some level, you know, um, we are told that the heart is pure, is at peace, is um, radiant. But most of our life, we get up in the morning, we don't quite feel radiant, at peace, luminous and free, do we? I didn't feel like that this morning particularly. I was slightly groggy when I got up. (laughs) And I didn't go to a party last night or didn't drink. So we can get up, not particularly feeling luminous, radiant, peaceful and enlightened. But there is a quality of knowing. Knowing that I feel groggy. The knowing itself, this is where we begin and end, so to speak. You know, there's nothing, nothing else to attain, nowhere else to go. That place where you can see the state of the mind is being heavy or the mind is being, uh, kind of confused or the mind is being, uh, attached to one thing or, you know, wanting something or the knowing itself, that's when the clinging disbands the knowing now that quality of knowing is not easy for most of us to understand because as soon as we find a quality of knowing we identify with it and we create another entity the knowing one and the unknowing one so you got the enlightened self in all of you and then you create an unenlightened one which means that when you have, when you're clinging to the knowing one, then you feel um, somehow happy, empowered, and peaceful, and so on. And then when you've clung to the unknowing one, then you think you've lost it. You've lost the knowing. But the knowing doesn't depend on clinging or not clinging. It's not dependent on that. Seeing yourself uh, turning into a rav. rav- a maniac through whatever motivates you right now, you know, whether you want to murder your boss, rape the women that you or the men that you're, <laughs> you're in love with, or whatever, whether you want to, you know, eat everything that in the shop that you see in the in the shop around the corner, or whether you know, whether I'm talking about extremes, you know, whether the mind is an extreme situation, extreme states. Or whether you just want to, um, you know, tell somebody off or, um, you know, do something silly, whatever that is for each one of us. You know, whatever quality it is, whether it's extreme or whether it's a a minute little act of um, clinging or minute little act to which you cling, you know, like wanting your neighbor to not be there. <laughs> Finding that people just cough too loudly or, you know, walk funnily or eat strangely or, or behave in a way that you just don't like. You know, or they wear your hairdo that you just find obnoxious. <laughs> Whatever it is, silly, isn't it? You want somebody to have straight hair when they're curly or to be tall when they're small, (laughs) or to be black when they are white, and white when they are black, whatever, you know. 
that clinging, that wanting is the beginning of our troubles. And we can spend years at the psychotherapist trying to tell him or her the mountain of misery that we're going through. And compassionately the therapist will listen. Almost to the point of utter boredom, I'm sure. How many (laughs) therapists have been bored to tears and yes, have to endure all that. You know, you give them such a hell of a time just because you... Because stupidly, we haven't seen that, the, the, really, the reason we suffer is because we cling, we, we hold on to an identity of anything, any old thing. Now, you could say, I have noticed in my practice, if I have a choice, I'd rather not cling. Because I know, like all of you, I think I have enough cleverness to know that if the teaching says cling, suffer, not cling, don't suffer, you know, we all pretty, I mean, we can, I think we can get that, that much understanding right. And yet I find myself clinging all the time at different times of the day. Identifying with this, identifying with that, with that soul, with this soul, this memory and that memory. And that can be very confusing, can't it? Teachings say you shouldn't be holding on to these things. If you are really truly practicing, you should be at peace with things. And then you find yourself suffering. You know, being discontent. And God how many reasons we have to be discontent. So we, we have so many reasons out there to continue the grasping to our discontent that we miss the, we miss the, 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 the target. You know, we keep shooting our mind out there, trying to find a reason for the mind suffering. We don't realize, you know, the practice itself is not out there. It's here in the heart itself. If you keep looking outside, you never get it. It's as simple as that. And yes, we are part of a culture that is absolutely committed to justify anything. So, and we become very clever at finding a reason for perpetuating that state of delusion. So, you know, our we need a strong commitment to actually free our heart to realize that the heart isn't the defilements or the, 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 the unskillful mental state that inhabits it from time to time, or those who have actually taken residence, those mental states, those unskillful mental states that have actually decided to squat, <laughs> uninvited. You know. There was a lot of squatting in London when I used to live there. People used to squat all around London. So now we've got all these defilements squatting, uninvited, unwelcome, and yet they just come for free. And so we don't know how to get them, get rid of them, you know, because we know if we, if we, uh, you know, if we're too forceful with our mind, it backlashes. And so that's really frightening, isn't it? So the teachings, um, I'm, I'm going to talk to you about four kind of ways, four ways of purifying the heart. <coughs> the first one is um, containing the mind within the realm of ethic. Having an ethical container. Without that, you'll never see clearly what the mind is about, what the heart is about. 
an ethical container. All containers are there not to imprison you, not to bind you, not to make you more miserable, but to create a very clear mirror. If you think of all containers, all aspect of restraint, all aspect of discipline as an increasing capacity to mirror back our action by body, speech, and mind. What we call discipline, training, restraint, it's another way of expressing, developing a mirror-like quality of the mind, of the heart. So in our culture, discipline, restraint, uh, training has such a terrible connotation that every time we hear the words, you know, there is, we get prickly. And we get all these kind of, um, you know, this kind of little kind of spikes all around. We just don't want to hear it. <laughs> spikes like you can feel people start getting kind of agitated. You've got to train yourself. That reminds us of schools, the military, the Boy Scouts sessions. Mum and dad, granny, Especially in Asia, granny are very powerful. They talk, take all their children to those religious places because they're ready to die, but the kids are not. <laughs> so grannies always find a lot of meaning in, in becoming spiritual at the end of their lives in Asia. And maybe they have been like that all through their life too. So, um, you know, uh, many of you have uh, heard about the five precepts of refraining from killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, <coughs> and taking drugs or any kind of um, substances that just dull the mind. And I'm not talking about painkillers, antidepressant, or what, you know, this is whatever the doctors have find helpful for you to take. Don't mistake that with what the Buddha was speaking about when he talked about, when when we described the fifth precept, which is refraining from taking drugs, intoxicant, and alcohol, which cloud the mind and um, confuse us. In fact, our society is becoming more wise to that, you know, when people have realized that drinking is a terrific cause of danger and can kill so often. So refrain from drinking, taking drugs, intoxicant. Anything that, in a way, will take us away from that realm of liberation, liberating the heart. You don't liberate the heart unless you have a very clear mirror-like wisdom. So, um, to commit yourself to a standard of ethics which will uh, simplify your life, will frustrate your desires endlessly, Yes, don't I, I, I said that <laughs> in case you thought you meet her. Will frustrate your desires endlessly, or your habits, you could say. You know, I'm not saying the desire for liberation, the desire for practice, the desire for love and compassion. I'm talking about the desires that are unskillful. You know, your habits to lie, the habit to indulge in sexual misconduct, the habit to indulge in lying, gossiping, 
backbiting, slandering, and so on, will be frustrated through the precepts. You know? So are we ready for that? Do we want to actually do what is necessary to liberate the heart? Or just, just we want another pill called the Dharma pill? You know, the Dharma pills, the number of them. One of them is a teacher often. The teacher is a good Dharma pill. You look at Gil, probably, and Gil will solve my problem. As long as I sit at Gil's feet, life should be all right. Or Achen Sumedo, or whoever. We don't think so. We say, oh no, I'm independent. I'm just here to learn. Gil is only pointing the way. Or Ajahn Sumedho only pointing the way. But often, when dukkha arises in our heart, we don't even notice it, do we? Without a teacher saying, this is actually suffering. Do you know that? You know, we don't notice the sense of dissatisfaction we have. We haven't noticed the first noble truth. Dukkha. So those precepts <coughs> of refraining from harming, stealing, lying, sexual misconduct, and taking drugs and intoxicants, it doesn't mean that you don't can't have your glass of wine from time to time. See, people say, well, I can only take three precepts then because I want to have my sex when I want and I want to get drunk when I want. <laughs> well, it's up to you, really. You can choose <laughs> the way you want to lead your life. But if you suffer, then you won't be surprised, you know. And in certain tradition, you know, that's, that's a kind of free for all. Sort of, you know, get enlightened and do what you want. Well, I, I wish I could find that, you know, that this tradition works for me. It never did, you know. It never did. And I'm glad that in the discourses of the Buddhas uh, with his disciples, he's never encouraged just to be completely, uh, you know, to let your, your desire, unskillful desire, go rampant, loose, and, 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 and as a way to liberation. He never said that once. And I've read most of the discourses. Never. You know, has he said that by, not if you don't keep those precepts and keeping those precepts, remember, it's just believing in them. It's just if you don't reflect and understand that those precepts are a way of restraining your action by body, speech, and mind from perpetuating unskillful behaviors, which will lead to be reborn into a deeper state of suffering, be reborn into a hell realm. So we need to wake up to really um, brighten up this quality of, uh, you know, of mind, factors of mindfulness, awareness. Yeah. Now the second aspect is the aspect of um, sense restraint, which is really, um, you could say, part of the... Um, ethic I was just talking to you about just now, just using your senses, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind, you have all this right now, at this time in your life, that might not go on forever, remember, in 20 years time we might be with little tripods, half blind, deaf, unable to walk, not a joke, you know, rejoice while you have those senses, 
and they're still functioning. And they're still doing what they're supposed to be doing, which means showing you the way to liberation. But only they show you the way if you stop grasping at them. So meditating on the six senses, it's a very, it's really what the practice of meditation is about. Contemplating the way uh, when you look at something, uh, learning from seeing, from the seeing, from hearing, from sensing, tasting, smelling, touching, thinking. You know, you, you, you now, whatever you experience is a, is a, is a way of learning about what? About dukkha, about sukha, pleasure and pain. You know, neither dukkha, nor sukha, neither pleasure, nor pain, the kind of neutral feelings. And then noticing, you know, when you cling, the suffering of clinging to sight, clinging to sound, clinging to a taste, clinging to touch, clinging to thoughts. You know, most of the time we cling, we don't suffer. Most people will say, well, I cling to that and I'm damn happy. I'm really, really very happy. I cling to my dog and my dog made me really happy. And I cling to my thoughts and my thoughts made me really happy. I cling to my partner. My partner makes me very happy. As long as, long as she or he is here, when they, are, when they don't want to be with you anymore, what do you do? Do they make you happy? You know? So we don't realize that within the happiness itself is already the seed of unhappiness. Within the pleasure itself is a seed contained is a seed of displeasure or suffering or pain. And so we have to learn to really see clearly those uh, those truths. You know, to see those truths clearly. Such, so, so much so that our whole life becomes a rich field of learning with no judgment, no uh, biases. You don't have to take a stand against pleasure or take a stand against pain. You don't have to be, a, you know, um, you say arbitre, you know, one of those football, the, the guy who, in a football match. Referee. A referee, you don't have to be a referee, you know, in your life football field you know you can just be a compassionate witness that that learns about the suffering that you experience your attachment it learns about the pain and the happiness that you experience it learns about everything willing to learn everything without picking and choosing and so that by doing that by giving you the, you the space to make mistakes to not get it right, to not be a saint overnight or an enlightened being after 10 days of meditation, to give you that possibility of not expecting to be enlightened after a few days of practice, to not have that expectations, that demand that we make on ourselves, then you can begin to have develop right view around the sensory experience. Right view is you know there is suffering when you cling and there's no suffering when you don't cling. Simple.
Now, most of our grasping and clinging to any of the sensory experience doesn't come even from this moment now. It comes from habit from the past. Remember that? From habit from the past. You might be fine. You might understand perfectly what to do now. But the forces of habit are so strong sometimes that you can't withstand them. In fact, they blind you. They can blind you completely. This, this is another aspect of practice when you this aspect of patience patiently bearing with the past the result of past habits the result of past action what we call the vipaka karma the resultant karma of our life to patiently bear with that rather than recreate in the moment this the a person an entity being reborn in this moment as a miserable entity. You see? Without that quality of patience, without the quality of knowing, without the quality of spaciousness and compassion in ourselves, we keep being reborn. We be reborn as righteous Buddhists, for example. We can even a good thing, like a Buddhist. But then it becomes righteous. You can be reborn as a as a good person. And make life miserable for everybody around you when you want to convert them to Buddhism. <laughs> Never heard this word. <laughs> the Buddhism <coughs> religion, you know. So ism, you can see, has a f- taste of attachment there. This is why we hate it. I hated it. All the ism in my life. Took me three years, in fact, to accept the fact that I was a Buddhist nun. Buddhist. I didn't mind so much being a nun, but the, having to have a ism at the end of it was kind of. I felt limited by that for a while. And then, of course, you don't feel so limited by words and concepts. That's why you can go beyond words and concepts and understand more the meaning and the, and the, the you could say the essence of the words when you don't stuck. You're not so attached to words. That's another aspect of your thinking. When, you, not, when you've been able to see thought come and go, when you've been able to see the wisest thought taking you to the most silly actions, clinging to wisdom, to wise thought and finding yourself doing the most stupid things whilst, whilst you are clinging to a very wise thinking, very wise way of thinking, ending up doing some really stupid thing. I always use the example of the person who is doing decided to do a very healthy diet, you know, and you'd maybe even microbiotic diet, something really kind of, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> ugh. you know, doesn't taste very sweet. <laughs> I was a microbiotic for a while, so I know about it. And uh, that was many years ago. You know, and then, or you decide to to a very wise thing when you find yourself overweight, you decide to kind of lose weight, which is a very wise thought. All the doctors will tell you lose weight for your heart, your liver, your bladder, everything, cancer, whatever. And then you cling to that thought. It feels so good. You spend about a day thinking about it, <laughs> clinging to it. And by the time comes the second day, you obsess yourself so much with goodism that you turn into this raven, uh, raving, uh, greedy maniac. 
And instead of going towards macrobiotic, you start eating ice cream and chocolate eclair and forget. Say, oh dear, I, I did determine to have a good diet yesterday. What happened to me? Well, what happened to you is that you were clinging to the thought and that cling, the thought was good, but the clinging was what destroy all attempt to actually act on it. Because the clinging to that thought makes you feel, I've got it, doesn't it? And most of us stay stuck at that level. We stay stuck at clinging to thinking, but we never really go deeper and start doing what is necessary to integrate and put into practice that thought. This is our predicament, you know, we, we all in that same boat. So we cling to meditation practice, let's say, we say, oh yes, I have to practice diligently, I've got to keep the precepts, I've got to really do good without being a you know, do-gooder. Um, I've got to do this, it's really good, my teacher says it's good, the Buddha says it's good, Ajahn Chah says it's good. And then you haven't realized you clung to this sense of goodness, and the clinging will take you to where? You got one up, and it goes, yep. The desire to be horrible, miserable, selfish, disgusting, filthy. All the unskillful mental states come up because you've clung so much to the good part of your mind. So, this is where we are at. We have to learn through this pendulum yo-yo feeling, you know. So, because the clinging and non-grasping doesn't happen overnight. You know, clinging is really our identity. And it's comfortable. It's known. It's familiar. It feels okay. Even if we cling to being a complete alcoholic, at least it's more emotionally secure than anything else. You understand? You see how we are at? How difficult it is? So to go to the, the place of no clinging, you have to go through that little tunnel at some point, which doesn't feel so good. It's a tunnel of fear, of discomfort, of pain, the tunnel of dukkha. You know? So how many of us are prepared to do that? Just a little taste of it. We don't need a lot, just a little taste. And you know, the, the Dhamma, I always feel that the Dhamma path is a very compassionate path. If you're open and willing to practice and open and willing to liberate yourself, you only get as much fear as you can handle. You never get more than that. Never. Just as much as you can handle. You know? It's quite wonderful. So if you can handle a little, you get just a little. Just that much to give you a little taste so you can go through across the other side, to the other shore. It's called the other shore. See? So there's no really fear to have. You just open yourself to that intention to free your heart and whatever life brings to you, it will just be enough for you to work with. It's quite marvelous the way it actually happens. So um, when, you, um, when you really observe the way the senses respond to life, there's no need to judge. You see a beautiful object, you enjoy it, you feel how much it makes your body happy, it makes your heart happy, and the next thing you know, you 
grasp, get, want, now. And that's, that's when the trouble begins. But as long as you are happy with what is happy in front of you, it's fine. The Buddha doesn't say you should squash it, suppress it, repress it, murder it. It just says, you know, basically when something is pleasant, then you know it's pleasant. And knowing is mean just enjoy the moment. Enjoy, some teacher will say, oh no, you must not enjoy. What I mean is that you're aware of the enjoyment. You know, you're fully conscious it's pleasant. Now, if there is no mindfulness, of course, then the next thing you know is you're grasping. That's really the price to pay. Now, most of us are very addicted to grasping. We don't want to let go, really. And to recognize that itself is a great beginning. To recognize we don't actually want to let go. We're committed to holding on to things. That realization of our commitment to the wrong thing is already beginning to go through that little pathway that takes you to the other shore. So, let's say, uh, and it works always. This is just a magic thing. It always works. Just beginning to know, for example, I mean, not example don't come to me so easily, but let's say, um, let's try an example in my own life. Um, When I see myself getting lazy with something, like lazy with my meditation or lazy with my formal practice, you know, I don't have to beat myself up. I realize now I learned my lesson. I just realize I have to be aware of that feeling in my heart because the feeling in my heart may not even be in touch with reality. You know, like if you practice intensively for a while and you don't practice so intensively, it's saying, oh, I've lost it. You know, it's just, uh, it's just, uh, what do you call, um, it's, um, you know, I can't find a word. It seems that you've lost it because of the intensification of your practice at some point. You know, it's relative. That's what I was looking for. It's relative. So the feeling that comes up, say, I'm lazy. Okay. Now, I have learned to notice the feeling that says, I'm lazy. That thought that says, I'm lazy. Because that thought may be informing me about something that is real, or it may not. It may be the work of Mara trying to make me feel more miserable. So I won't even practice at all. Because if I feel lazy, then I get miserable. And then I get negative about myself. And I start remembering all the negative things I've done in my life. And then da, 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 da. You're down the drain. Before you know it, you're down the pit of the abyss of despair and misery. So you see how stupid we are? So compassionately stupid with ourselves. <coughs> so that's a good thing. Like you feel, oh, I'm a vain person, or I'm an abusive person, you know. Because now that you practice this uh, path of Buddhism, of course, the ideal, the standards are very high. You know, you read the simile of the soul in the teachings, you know, and the Buddha says, even if somebody was cutting your limbs bit by bit and you had one moment of anger towards those people, you would not be a disciple of mine. I mean, where does that leave us, huh? if you believe in that? <laughs> You'll be beaten up for the rest of your life without moving, without even, you know, without any qualms. So now to use a teaching with intelligence and wisdom, it means really it's a reflection for us to be patient 
with the pain that are inflicted on us daily. You know. So of course, when you when the Buddha says, even if somebody tortured you, you shouldn't have any thought of, you know, of of anger. It means when you come out to, you know, when you go to your room or you 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 go to your job and your boss is, you know, obnoxious with you or whatever. It doesn't mean I have to leave him being, you know, let him being obnoxious. But at least in your heart, you can carry on cultivating the seeds of enlightenment, patience, mindfulness, energy, wakefulness, and restraint and contentment. These are the seeds that will help your mindfulness to be sustained without break. So there are two levels, you can see. The level of practice and life itself. Life itself will never be, never be um, as you expect it to be. Like if you say, you know, I'm committed to not suffering. I'm really, I want to liberate my heart. But then the experience of life, the experiences of life are very different. They keep bringing back to you the very material you need to go to the other shore. But what we spend, we spend a lot of time just kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, stomping on one, on one side of the shore. We keep stomping angrily and fed up and impatiently, discontented, miserable. We keep stomping and accusing the whole world that this is, I'm miserable because of the world does to me. Well, now, are you prepared, are we all prepared to do what it takes to actually uh, see where we cling and see the place of no clinging? What happened? You know, you can, you, you have to be, uh, uh, have to have the spirit of experimentation. It's like being in the laboratory of it. So, if you want to know something, you will never know unless you experience it. You know, you have to do those experiences. Even when you are in a difficult position and you suddenly, let's say you are with you, a, a relatives of yours or family members who is difficult, you know. You can even in that particular situation, you can experiment. You might not be able to let go for more than about 10 seconds. But just for 10 seconds to let go of the mind of all the grievances and all the stuff that goes on in relationship to that person. Just for 10 seconds and see what happened to you. And then suddenly you might actually get a taste of peace. You know? But do we want peace at that moment? No. We'd rather go into a big kind of quarrel and argument and I am right, you're wrong, and get out of my way. Kind of feeling. That feels so much more real than just experimenting for maybe one minute of not holding on to your agenda the agenda of me and mine. What would I be like for 10 seconds, one minute? You see, I learn letting go just through that process myself. I'm French, <laughs> which means, you know, being French, you're not born, I think, in France, you know, by chance, I think. You're born because you're totally committed to be a sensual beast. You know, with no remorse whatsoever. I'm just, you know, I'm horrified when I go to France sometime and see people kind of 
quibbling about what kind of thing they need to go with their meat and their wine and their this and their that. And, and you think that the cookbooks in French are just, well, you know, just a restaurant. Everybody's as finicky in their kitchen. Even the poorest person is as finicky and, you know, uh, as 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 uh, uh, fiddly and and uh, and and you know demanding as the cookbook says or the greatest chef. You know, they all like that. Things may have changed, you know, over 20 years that I haven't been around for very long there. Uh, but I've noticed every time I go back, there's still that total commitment to uh, to having things a certain way, so that the taste bud won't get that won't get disappointed. <laughs> See how dr- funny. So because of that, I've made the practice help me to accept myself also. So because I like. Thing that you know, pleasant sensual, sensual sensation, visual sights, sound, and so on. And and I, you know, I, I spend many many years uh, cultivating, improving, refining my taste. You know. So when I arrived at Chetas Monastery, for example, which was a work site, a dump, <laughs> a, you know. And uh, and the dark, gloomy-looking kind of... Uh, I always thought that one of those, um, you know, um, what do you call Dracula would come out of that house. <laughs> come out. So can you imagine the shock to the system? You know, I went into a dukkha, really, for quite a number of years. Beside the fact that I was living with three women, which I tried to avoid for 33 years. <laughs> And I wasn't a country girl, and I was living in the countryside, you know, in the midst of nowhere. I mean, it wasn't nowhere, really. It was a very sophisticated countryside, I have to say. You know, it wasn't what was called the, um, what do they call the, um, I've forgotten the word. The one we work for the uh, stock exchange. Stockbroker belt, that's right. That's a stockbroker belt. So it's not too bad, is it? But still, it was pretty country, country-like for me. And, um, you know, so if I had really, if, if just sense satisfaction and pleasant sights and sound or taste or had been my commitment, I would have been, I could never live there for very long. But when you suddenly make, uh, you know, your experiences uh, a field of learning, then it was wonderful because I actually freed myself from my attachment. You know, not completely, I'm sure. There's plenty of challenges coming my way. Just as I'm saying this, I'm careful. <laughs> I know the way it works. <laughs> Remember Ramdas who said once, you know, don't, you know, be careful what you desire because they always come at the time we couldn't care less. <laughs> Well, it's exactly as you say this. You have to be careful what you say. So, um, you know, but but basically, there's a lot of situation in my life where my heart is at peace. You know, that sense of peace is 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 there because I don't expect things to be neither ugly or beautiful. It's just as it is. And also, with the practice, your button don't get so pushed anymore. You've let go at some level. You know. At some level, you can see green, red, yellow, and but the mind just doesn't conjure up anything. It's just peaceful. 
Well, before I would say blue is my favorite color. And I look at green and yellow and, uh, you know, it's, I don't, I, I would say I hate yellow, you know. But you see, I even had that experience that the mind and the emotions are very different because I always hated yellow. I couldn't like, I didn't like yellow. And at some point in my life as a nun, I clung to a yellow blanket. It's no joke. I had a yellow blanket on my bed and I really liked that. And I couldn't understand. I was kind of miss, kind of, it was sort of a strange experience to, at some level, I don't like yellow. At another, at another level, I clung to this yellow blanket. Now, how do you explain that? Huh? See how many levels we have? My conditioning says I don't like yellow, but my heart says I really like yellow. So, I, you know, people told me yellow is the color of brightness and sun is, you know, light and so on. So, maybe I was clinging, clinging to a little bit of something or other. It kind of made me laugh, I remember, you know. It's humorous, isn't it? So, to go back to what I was talking about, you know, uh, the senses. Don't feel that you have to shut all your senses. You just have to be prepared to learn from them. To learn from their suffering, to learn from their happiness, to learn from their unhappiness, to learn from the way they drive you, from the way they um, oppress you, and so on. We have to learn from everything. And so people, when, this, when you hear, you have to learn from everything, then they go out and save Libya, you know, or Ethiopia, or they go off, you know, on a kind of peace march or something. But are you ready to actually learn from everything here at home already? Which is really what this teaching is pointing to. You know, all those miserable entities are just waiting for you to open the gates so that they can be dropped and let go of. Then there's another level of um, purification of the heart. So just to go back to the sense, uh, you know, observing the sensory world, the sense contact, the sense doors, and purifying those sense doors by keeping on, keeping, letting go. You keep letting go again and again and again. That's how you purify the sense doors. Also, you see the sense uh, consciousness, you know, that manifests through the sense doors and get agitated, get kind of sparkles through the sense object that are uh, appropriate to each one of them. You know, so that's how you purify the heart. The, the heart itself manifests, you know, sense consciousness manifests through the sense doors. You know, and as you keep observing, clinging, and no clinging, that's how the heart begins to let go of a deeper level, many levels, many layers of greed, hatred, and delusion. You see? Sometimes we don't know what we're clinging to, whether we're clinging to hatred, to greed, to delusion. You know? But don't worry. You don't even need to bother too much with that. Get your mind worked up about whether I'm a greedy type or whether I'm clinging to this. The Buddha said... There is clinging to suffering and not clinging to suffering. That's enough as, you could say, a paradigm. You know, clinging and no clinging. Suffering and no suffering. Then you don't have to think about a lot of things. You know? 
do I suffer? Am I observing a sense of discontent, whatever is going on in me at that moment when I look at a particular sight? You know, if there is suffering, you know there is suffering. If there is no suffering, you know there is no suffering. It's very simple at some level. And then the third one is about... um, taking care of um, one's livelihood. You know, livelihood. To be involved with a livelihood that doesn't harm other beings, for example. You know, we don't have much time to go into details, but right livelihood is included, you know, in the Noble Eightfold Path, in the practice of the, you know, the path of practice. You know, many people get really upset sometimes because they say, well, my uh, corporation down the line is hurting people. Should I quit my job? Well, this is not asking you to do that, you know, because we all need job to to live. We all need job to survive in this society, and we all need money to uh, take care of our family and children and relatives sometimes. But in the job that you're doing, just uh, the, the, your own profession, if you're not if you're not sure whether you're hurting people or not hurting, you can see just in your everyday life, just, um, you know, are you doing harm to other beings? You know, are, is it a place where people are killing, lying, cheating all the time? And if that is a place where people do that continuously, it's natural for you to not feel very good, you know. So if you don't feel very happy there, there's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> it's also the fact that the place may be not so skillful. But then you need the money. So this is why you're encouraged to practice with a place of working, because you might not be able to change anything, but you might be able to develop more compassion maybe for yourself and for the people involved. You know, you may be able to do your, your a little give a little you know, bestow a little drop of Dhamma even in that situation itself. By maybe, you know, talking to people, developing a sense of friendship, even with the people that are difficult, you know. Not giving up on people, not giving up on situations, you know. That's bringing the Dharma into the work situation, you know. To be able to, you might not be able to change anything, so okay. You do what you can do in that situation. And the last one is about... um, Taking care of one's requisites. So this teaching is really specific to, you could say, to the discipline of a monk or a nun, but it's also very applicable in your everyday life. So let's say taking care of the four requisites. The four requisites in, our, in, the, in the discipline of a monk or a nun is uh, the robe, food, shelter, and medicine. These are the four requisites. And um, those four requisites, uh, the Buddha uh, gave a standard, which is very low. When we ordain, for example, we accept the four requisites as our uh, support for life. And the lowest is like the, the, the robes. It could be rag robes. In the time of the Buddha, you could go to a cemetery or you know, a charnel ground and take the robes of the, the, you know, that was wrapped, wrapped, that wrapped corpses. You were allowed to 
or discarded piece of cloth. You could actually use that to make your robe. You notice my robe has little, it's in bits and pieces like that, which is actually not, it's one, one large piece, but it has these patterns. The Buddha said that if there was no, not enough cloth to make a robe, you could use little bits and pieces of cloth and make them, uh, use uh, the field of Magadha as a pattern for your robe. So this is like the paddy field patterns. You may not be able to see it, you see? These are the field and these are the, the, the row on which you can walk on. You know, the field of Magadha where the Buddha taught for many years. And so the robes um, can have, a, you know, you have you learn to be content with very little. So this is a spirit of the path of practice, is being content with little. Of course, in America, how can you pass on this message, you know? When even the president, after the 11th, 11th of September 2001, was encouraging his citizens to buy more, when everybody was in shock and trauma, I probably would buy all the wrong things too. <laughs> you know, when you're traumatized, you're not bound to have a lot of wisdom there. <clears throat> so, um, the requisites are an important aspect of our life. The clothes we wear, the shelters we live in, the food we eat, and the medicine we take to keep our body healthy. So look how we can purify those aspects of our life so that they are supportive for our practice, they're supportive for our path of liberation, they're supportive for our uh, peace of mind, body, and spirit. You know, how can we use the four requisites so that those four requisites are not generating more greed, more greed, more hatred, more stupidity and delusions. You know, as a layperson, you have a certain standard to keep. You know, a good home, a good place that feels comfortable and relaxed when you feel at ease. You know, you don't have to suddenly live, go and live in the forest in a little ramshackle hut. You don't have to do that. You know. But you can reflect, you know, on these these standards give you a, a reference point f- from which you can start reflecting on desires, you know. I want this. I want a new of this. Sometimes we need a new fridge. Sometimes we need a new home. Sometimes we need a new car. There's no, there's, you know, that's true. But now you can reflect, you know, with wisdom, with more wisdom. Do I need a new car because I want to impress my friend? Do I want a new home because of this or that? You know, do I want a new bicycle so I can win the next competition and, you know, show my friend, show this, this one that I'm really good, you know? So we use those requisites not to perpetuate unskillful mental states in ourselves. But sometimes we can pick up the training from the wrong end and start believing that to be a, you know, to practice correctly, then you have to let go of everything, husband, wife, children, house, home, run to the monastery ordained, shave your head. That's picking up the training from the wrong end, you know. 
The training is not encouraging, encouraging you to let go of everything. It's saying, use what you have to develop mindfulness. And through that mindfulness, wisdom arises. Through the arising of wisdom, you understand clearly what is suffering and non-suffering. Through understanding clearly what is non-suffering and non-suffering, then you get a taste of letting go and peace. The peace that empowers your heart, mind, body, and heart. The peace that widens your mind. The peace that brings a much deeper sense of freedom and beauty and compassion. You know, But you have to go through that. You have to go through that little pathway that is not so comfortable, not so easy, not so friendly, and not so um, familiar. We, are we ready to do that? Okay, this is our challenge. You want liberation, but you also have to do what it takes to be free. And the dukkha that the Buddha talked about is that little tunnel I was talking. This is dukkha. You know, it's not having a saw on one's foot. It's are we prepared not to experience the dukkha that's already there, but to experience the dukkha that come from not acting on unskillful, habitual mental states. Many of you have fasted, maybe. have given up habitual, you know, uh, addictions. You know what it takes, don't you? To let go of an addiction, you have to go through the suffering that, uh, that the body experiences when it doesn't have its habitual drug. And you could see that Attach uh, avidya or delusion is a form of drug. You know, it's like a drug that keeps us being reborn into things, even though we suffer. Still, keeps we are kept reborn. So, those four aspects of the purification of the heart, the um, aspect of um, whole, you know, respecting ethical standard, restraint of the six senses. Um, right livelihood and uh, reflection on the four requisites, those four things are for you now uh, a, a, a huge, um, it's like a, 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 a wonderful field of practice and learning. Not by taking a stand against this or that, taking a position, not by taking a position, not by holding on to being to developing goodism, remember that, but by uh, seeing from a place of wisdom what is painful, what is not painful. And this you will learn in your practice. Little by little by little, you will learn. You won't know it now, maybe immediately, but it comes. Little by little, you see more clearly. Ah, many of you have been practicing for some years. You know how far you've gone from the time when you were completely deluded, selfish, all over the place, careless and so on, to now, look at the progress that has happened just through practice, gentle practice. When you can respect yourself better, you can respect others, you're more patient, you're more restrained, you're more kind and so on. So this is a fruit of our practice daily. We do that. And it's not just dependent on a position, it's not dependent on a posture, 
It's something you can do at the kitchen sink while you are washing the dishes. Something you can do when you go and to the bathroom. It's something you can do when you, you know, drive a car, whenever. Any ordinary situation is a valuable opportunity to free the heart. Okay? So I'll leave you on those words.